Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Well, we're shrinking. Uh, the workforce of Wisconsin, that is. According to a study by the Wisconsin Counties Association, there will be about 130,000 fewer residents between the ages of 26 and 64 in the state by 2030. The biggest contributor to this loss is the state's failure to attract and retain young people. Between 2012 and 2020, there was a net outmigration of about 43,000 young people. About two-thirds of those who left moved to either Chicago or the Twin Cities. The study authors recommend that Wisconsin could attract workers by emphasizing its lower-than-average cost of living, declining tax rate, and higher-ranking schools. The Associated Press reports that the state's election commission has begun reviewing the rules for election observers. With a bipartisan vote of 5 to 1, the commission sent a notice to the governor of their intention to begin the rulemaking process. That process should be in place by the 2024 election. Election observation has become a hot-button issue as a result of the constant claims of election fraud by Donald Trump supporters. Both parties have vigorously attempted to recruit observers to monitor the in-person voting process. It's expected that the rules would specify the number of observers, the interactions between observers and voters and poll workers, and where observers can be located during voter registration. Many poll workers have expressed concerns about intimidating behavior and interference with their work since the 2020 presidential election. Madison police will be able to continue to use tear gas, mace, and less-than-lethal projectiles to control unruly crowds after the proposal to prohibit their use was withdrawn from the Common Council agenda last night. Instead, the council passed an ordinance requiring the yet-to-be-appointed independent police monitor to begin a study of its use 30 days after each occurrence. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. This is the second time an attempt to ban tear gas has been shot down by the council. After the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, where Madison police used a record amount of tear gas on protesters, the ban was shut down by the council, who said that they needed more information on its use. And while Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes was against the ban, he said at last night's meeting that he did support the alternative passed by the council. Channel 3000 reports that a local brewery has introduced a new beer brand as a means of raising money and awareness about domestic violence. Delta Beer Brewery will introduce its new product named One in Four, which alludes to the fact that one in four women, as well as one in nine men, have been victims of domestic violence. Delta is partnering with the Domestic Abuse Intervention Agency for the month of October when it will contribute one dollar for each pint sold of its beer at its brewery and in liquor stores. The brewery will also donate all tips from their tap room to the organization. The beer is already out on the streets. Delta has already sold out its initial 10 barrels, which it describes as, quote, an approachable West Coast IPA. The beer is now available in area grocery stores. I'll let the station's beer reviewer pass the final judgment on it. I had one the other day, and it was quite delicious. And those were your local news headlines. 
Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, top Democrats have been working to repeal Wisconsin's 173-year-old abortion ban. Today, Governor Evers unveiled a plan to bring that issue directly to the voters. Our producer, Wade Negihaupt, has more. Governor Evers is unveiling a plan to let Wisconsin residents propose ballot initiatives. The proposed amendment to the Wisconsin Constitution would let any resident with enough support propose initiatives to change state law. Those ballot initiatives could be on any issue, but in a press conference this morning, Evers pitched the proposal as a way for voters themselves to remove Wisconsin's 19th century ban on abortion. As I stand here in this room today, I want to note what's inscribed in the ceiling of this conference room. It's a phrase I've talked about a lot. Actually, when fourth graders come in, I talk about it to them. I've repeated it over the last three years, and it says, the will of the people is the law of the land. Well, right now, today, and when it comes to reproductive freedom, the will of the people isn't the law of the land. A recent poll by the Marquette Law School found that 63% of Wisconsinites oppose the overturning of federal protections for abortion under Roe v. Wade. Wisconsin does not allow for voters to change state law by ballot initiatives, though non-binding referenda may appear on the ballot for counties and municipalities. Other neighboring states do allow a direct process for changing state law, including Michigan, Illinois, and Ohio. But to bring the ballot initiative process to Wisconsin, the Republican-led legislature would need to approve a constitutional amendment allowing it. Governor Evers is calling a special session of the legislature in two weeks to consider his proposal, a repeated tactic by the governor that has had few results. While the governor can force the legislature to meet, he cannot force them to act, and almost all of the special sessions called by Evers have been quickly gaveled in and gaveled out without debate. Most recently, lawmakers met in June to address the state's 19th century abortion ban. That session lasted all of 14 seconds. But Evers says this time, his proposed change actually came from a Republican. And as of last week, This idea has new bipartisan support in Wisconsin. I agree with U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, and there's a sentence for you. If Republican legislators aren't going to uphold the will of the people, then the people of the state should have the right to take a stand at the ballot box. That's in reference to a comment made by Senator Ron Johnson last week to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where he said that he supported a direct referendum to updating Wisconsin's abortion ban. In a statement to WORT Today, Johnson did not say whether he supported bringing binding referendums to Wisconsin, instead saying that he hears that Wisconsinites are more concerned with baby formula shortages and open borders. GOP Republicans in the legislature, including Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu and Assembly Speaker Robin Vost, signaled they would not support any changes for the proposals, calling the special session a political stunt. Democratic State Senator Melissa Agard of Madison says that she doesn't think it's likely the special session will bring results. But any of the Republicans in the legislature that are questioning this should support what it is that the governor has proposed because we will take the question of the people and let them weigh in on whether or not we should repeal this criminal abortion ban. 
and the legislature must hear the voices of those people. The special session will take place in just under two weeks on October 4th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Libraries across the country have seen a rise in challenged books in recent years. The American Library Association observes Banned Books Week this week to call attention to the issue. Brett Pivato with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Controversial books are nothing new, but the incidence of book challenges and bans has increased substantially in recent years. This week marks the American Library Association's annual Banned Books Week, and this year's theme is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. The ALA has conducted polling on the issue that illustrates that 71% of Americans oppose efforts to remove books from public libraries, and 67% oppose efforts to remove books from school libraries. Nancy Bell is the Reader's Advisory Librarian at the Oshkosh Public Library. She says while Wisconsin has not seen as many challenges as in other parts of the country, their commitment to the freedom to read is the same. It was so important to bring these to the forefront because we have seen across the country that this past year was record-breaking in the worst way for challenged books and banned books. And so we really wanted to make an official statement saying we also, as a public library, support these values and the freedom to read. More information on the ALA's initiative to fight censorship is online at uniteagainstbookbans.org. Within the ALA is the Office for Intellectual Freedom, where they've been tracking book censorship for decades. Its director, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, says organized political groups who advocate censorship are involved in efforts to influence school boards and library boards, sending motivated voices to speak to elected officials. Office holders facing book challenges often end up listening to the people speaking out at public meetings, but when opponents of censorship make their voices heard, things can go differently. When they There are others in the room speaking out against censorship, speaking out in favor of having a wide variety of books available for young people to read, for the community to read. Then we often see efforts to remove books fail. Caldwell Stone says writing an email to the library board or sending a letter with another supporter to be read at a meeting may also give busy people a way to make their voices heard. Over her career, Caldwell Stone has seen the kinds of books that are challenged expand. She says books that contain profanity or coming-of-age stories with accounts of first sexual experiences often have been challenged, but in recent years, challenges have taken on additional political dimensions. When you look at the books that are challenged, you're seeing books that have no sexual content at all, but advance different narratives around our history with racism or the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons. The ALA estimates between 82 and 97 percent of book challenges go unreported. For Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Brett Pivato. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And the time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. With cooler fall weather settling in, it's a great time to get out and explore a county park. In this installment of Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull takes a look at Indian Lake and walks through some events coming up at the park. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Indian Lake is one of 26 recreation parks managed by Dane County. It's roughly 10 miles northwest of Middleton, but easily accessible as it's just a short detour off US-12. 
The park's roughly 800 acres are centered around a wide valley with a small lake in the middle. It's this lake that gives the park its name, so you might be surprised to find that the lake itself offers few opportunities for recreation. The lake, at Indian Lake, is surrounded almost entirely by wetland plants, tall grass, and wildflowers. There are maintained paths all over the place, but none of them actually go down to the lakeshore. The placement of the paths, and numerous wooden benches along them, suggest that you're supposed to appreciate the water from a distance. In this instance, I think that's the right approach. There is a designated boat launch, but I don't think I've ever seen it used for that purpose. People who are used to paddling around Madison are unlikely to be impressed by Indian Lake's waterfront offerings. The whole thing is less than half the size of Lake Monona's Brittingham Bay, so don't rush to bring your kayaks up here from the city. I suspect, if anything, people bring their boats here to fish, but that's about it. So if people don't really swim or canoe much out here, what's the point? The people who built this park could have left the lake off-limits to everyone but the local wildlife. Yet, the boat launch exists, and it's a whole separate entrance way on the other side of the lake from the main parking lot. Why did the county build a whole second driveway just to have access to an unremarkable body of water? The answer lies with the real focus of the west end of the park. Dogs. On the map, the west end of the park is denoted the pet exercise area, but there's no fence to mark the boundaries as you look around. Instead, you'll find the same wide, grassy paths as everywhere else, only now populated by dogs roaming free. If it gets too hot out in the field, that's where the lake comes in. Dog and human alike can cool off by jumping off the dock or walking straight in down the ramp. Of course, some of this is conjecture on my part. I've never visited Indian Lake during truly hot weather, though my first trip was unseasonably warm for February. The Indian Lake I know is nothing but brown grass, bare trees, and muddy trails. But I love it anyway. A lot of this has to do with the park's terrain. Indian Lake is located just on the edge of Wisconsin's unglaciated, driftless region, and you can tell as soon as you turn left off Highway 12. The road leading up to the park snakes between hills steeper and more frequent than we're used to in the flat part of the Badger State. Amidst these ridges, you'll still find farms. Rows of grain or beans snake their way down the valleys, but every hill has a point at which it becomes too steep to plow. This means that most of the ridges in this region are topped with trees, but cleared or grassy down below. In a satellite view, this creates a mesmerizing pattern. Green and gold striations all over the driftless. On the ground, this dichotomy means that you can hike between habitats quickly. From the main parking lot, you can either walk down along the lake or up to the top of the ridge within 10 minutes. The path up is narrow in spots, muddy in others, but it's constructed in such a way as to give you the best possible view all the way up. After a few minutes, the trail stops its ascent, and you find yourself under a canopy of hardwoods. Off to one side of the trail, a building no bigger than a garden shed sits behind a spiky black iron fence. The hut doesn't have many exterior details, but the cross atop its roof makes its purpose unmistakable. This is St. Mary of the Oaks. I'm sure there are rules that make this technically not true, 
but I like to call it the smallest Catholic church in Wisconsin. At first glance, this gray box with a pointed roof seems a bit out of place. Like, who put a child's drawing of a church in the middle of a forest? But simplistic design aside, the craftsmanship is still impressive. Sure, there are people dedicated to its preservation, but the structure has stood, mostly unchanged, for 165 years. The inside, for what it's worth, is actually kinda cozy. The walls are the same smooth mortar as the outside, but painted white. There's a window in each sidewall, and stained glass in the door, so the little space is plenty bright, even without so much as a candle going. A guest book sits atop the wooden altar. You can record your visit and leave a little message if you wish. While bigger churches are monuments to the glory of God, St. Mary of the Oaks is a modest space, perfect for a moment of reflection. If you'd rather look outward than inward, Indian Lake has you covered too. Not 20 yards past the chapel, the trail opens up again, terminating in a spectacular lookout. Beyond a low wood guardrail, the ridge drops off, permitting a view of Indian Lake and the verdant hills and valleys beyond. When a single farmer hauled all those stones up here to build that chapel, perhaps this is what he was thanking God for. Before I go, I feel I should mention a few upcoming events at Indian Lake Park. If you're in the mood for some volunteer work, there's going to be a seed collecting event this Friday from 9 a.m. to noon. Volunteers will collect seeds from Indian Lakes Prairie so that the seeds can help with native plant restoration elsewhere. If you can't make this one, there's also a collection day at the same time on October 18th. For those who like to experience their parks at a faster pace, the 13th annual trail run at Indian Lake is on October 1st. Those interested can learn more and sign up at friendsofindianlake.org. Finally, on October 19th, there's the Owl Walk. For $5, you'll be treated to a two-mile walk through Indian Lake's forests, where you'll get as good a chance as any to see and hear some of our local birds of the night. Though you're not guaranteed to see an owl, you are guaranteed s'mores, so you really can't lose. Information can be found on the Dane County Parks website, and I'll link all this stuff in the online version of this story. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, the last 36 hours didn't go quite as anticipated, but pretty close. We did not get anywhere near the upper 80s that we were looking for yesterday, but we probably would have had it not been for a more active, low-level jet than we were expecting, lingering overhead here through a good portion of the afternoon. Uh, this was not well captured by the models, but you might have noticed it in the very distinctive kind of cloud growth that we saw in the skies yesterday. 
And you could certainly see it on the visible satellite imagery, if you were looking at that, with a prominent stream of intermittent cloud cover, perhaps uh, 40 or 50 miles wide or so, plainly visible, traveling east-northeastward across the state from Iowa through much of the day. Originally, this was feeding an outbreak of thunderstorms, which was traversing the northern part of the state from west to east during the overnight period, going into Tuesday. Uh, But shortly after dawn, rolls of uh, low-level outflow clouds began pushing south through southern Wisconsin behind the veil of cirrus, or underneath the veil of cirrus from the storms that was already overhead here. That widespread cloud cover then prevented temperatures warming much as we went through the morning hours, and then we saw one last focused stream of moisture finding just enough cool air aloft ahead of the incoming upper ridge to sprout a line of elevated thunderstorms in the afternoon. And their passage across the isthmus around 2 o'clock provided one final round of low-level cooling before uninterrupted warming could then finally get underway in the mid-afternoon. But by that time, and with only a few hours of sunshine left in the day given the time of year, the thermometer only responded to 81 degrees. Though the uh, leap in dew points that followed the rain up to up into the low 70s certainly put a summer-like feel into the air for the final part of the day. The cold front behind the upper ridge was uh, just a bit later than expected, pushing through in the morning hours today. Uh, so after quite a summer-like night last night in which we hung in the mid-70s, the thermometer uh, dropped a little bit, but then basically stood still the rest of the day today, not varying much from uh, 69 or 70, though dew points did plummet through the morning hours from the upper 60s where they were down to around 50. So if it seemed any cooler later this afternoon, that was probably the result of the drying out of the air column. That dry air, and indeed the even drier air that's going to be advecting in from the northwest over the coming 36 hours, will allow for temperatures to drop to the upper 30s, at least in spots, I think, as we get on to Friday morning and the winds die off underneath the center of the incoming surface high-pressure cell, uh, which I should mention only a few days ago was up in uh, the Yukon. Uh, If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll see over the course of the past three days there, the upper ridge over the center of the country, which kept the last several days so warm, starting to be suppressed now southward by incoming upper troughing from Canada. While out to the west off the coast of Northern California, a cutoff low pressure circulation spins away pretty much in place, uh, at least until the last few frames of the image sequence there, when it can be seen starting to lift northeastward. That disturbance will ride over the top of the intervening upper ridge over the Rockies tomorrow and slide eastward towards Lake Superior Friday and Saturday, swinging warm front-related precipitation at us in the process. The high-resolution computer models are not particularly bullish about precipitation amounts with this, since we'll have a fair bit of dry, low-level air to help evaporate incoming precipitation, at least to start with on Friday. But passing showers are a threat from later Friday through the overnight period into Saturday, perhaps even through part of Saturday, with showers perhaps returning then again at least intermittently as cooler air returns behind the cold front on Sunday. Uh, Incidentally, if you do have the water vapor image up in front of you, check out Hurricane Fiona, spectacularly well organized at Category 4 currently, churning our way slowly northward up the Atlantic towards Bermuda. Uh, But back to more local matters, uh, tonight the 
cloud cover uh, should slowly dissipate as we go through the evening, and temperatures will drop to the mid-40s by tomorrow morning on northwesterly winds staying pretty active up at 12 to 17 miles per hour overnight. Tomorrow, clear skies are likely to see scattered, short, fast-moving cumulus develop probably in the morning hours or midday, but I generally expect clear skies through much of the day tomorrow. Temperatures will reach the upper 50s, uh, maybe 60, if cloud development remains fairly limited. Northwesterly winds at 10 to 17 miles per hour will veer more northerly and start to come down uh, later in the afternoon. Uh, by the way, the uh, tunnel equinox will occur at 8.03 p.m. tomorrow evening, if you're keeping track. Lighter winds overnight uh, coming down to near calm, actually, by morning should allow the temperatures to drop to uh, 40 or perhaps the upper 30s in some of the low-lying spots, although high clouds beginning to enter the skies from the north and west in the later period of the overnight may hold us up another degree or two. Uh, Friday, slowly increasing high and mid-level clouds will suppress temperatures from going uh, too much north of 60 degrees, but uh, we'll see winds veering southeast and south at 48 miles per hour by the end of the day. Light showers may then begin to pass over western areas uh, in the afternoon, slowly working eastward, though as I mentioned, dry air may defeat uh, some or all of that precipitation, especially over the earlier stages of that, uh, of that uh, period. Better rain chances will occur overnight then as skies deepen further, but uh, even then I'd be surprised to see more than maybe a tenth of an inch come down. Temperatures will hold around 50 during the overnight, recovering then into the low 60s on Saturday, hopefully with some uh, clearing in the mid or late day hours as well. Southwesterly winds will veer west and northwest in the overnight, and we may see some passing showers again as cooler air comes in on Sunday, uh, keeping temperatures probably stuck that day just in the low 60s again. Uh, at the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 65 degrees. The dew point temperature is 47. Winds are out of the northwest at 9 miles per hour. Um, passing uh, high clouds uh, over the city, uh, mostly clear skies, though, now. And uh, winds are out of the, uh, as I mentioned, out of the northwest at 9 miles per hour. The barometer is rising at 29.99 inches of mercury. We go now to 1969, when students staged a sit-in at West High. Central High held its last graduation. The school board marked a feminist milestone, and an honored educator passed away. Stu Levitan reports on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, The Public Schools, 1969 As the year opens, students at West High School reach a new level of activism. On January 28th, about 150 of the school's 1,510 students stage a two-hour sit-in near the Ash Street entrance, supporting the demands of the group Concerned Students of West High School, which include abolishing the dress and grooming code, letting girls wear slacks to class, reestablishing the open lunch hour, creating a student smoking lounge, hiring more minority teachers, not providing any information to the Selective Service System, and allowing distribution of the student-controlled free press. 
West High Principal David A. Spencer says the free press is unnecessary because the school publishes the West High Times and, quote, we do not censor it. A month later, however, Spencer prevents distribution of an issue of the West High Times because he thinks its coverage of the sit-in is, quote, an editorial disguised as a news story. In February, Spencer agrees to let girls wear slacks and says an open lunch will start after Easter vacation, providing students keep the cafeteria immaculate until then. Girls at James Madison Memorial High School can already wear slacks, with parental permission, but not girls at any other high school in Madison. Girls at Robert M. LaFollette High School can wear slacks over their clothes to get to school in the winter, but are subject to suspension for wearing slacks to class. On May 5th, as the worst night of the Mifflin Block Party riots rages all around the school administration building on Bedford Street, the board gives up its nine-month struggle to write specific dress and grooming guidelines, repeals its earlier mandate for all boys to be clean-shaven, and delegates to building principals the authority to make, quote, reasonable rules of conduct to prohibit conduct which disrupts, hinders, or interferes with the education of other students, and conduct which endangers the health, safety, or welfare of students, faculty, and staff. The board will support with all its resources the action of any teacher, custodian, supervisor, or administrator which is within the scope necessary to prevent disruption of any function of the school system. Principals will continue to have authority to suspend with expulsions coming to the board. Why the hell did we get into this? School board member Albert McGinnis wonders. On June 5th, the final bell tolls for Central University High School at its hundredth and last graduation. Valedictorian Karen Bergstedt calls on her 185 classmates in dark blue caps and gowns to remember their fierce pride in going to what she says is the smallest but very best high school in the city. Her comments fit the official class motto, There'll be no tears, for these were happy years. The last diploma goes to Joseph W. Voltaggio, chosen by lot for the bittersweet honor. The choir sings Blessing, Glory, and Wisdom by Bach, the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic from Carousel, You'll Never Walk Alone, and the school song, Hail Central High, Grand Old School. School Board President Ray Sennett, Madison High, Class of 1922, the last class before the school became Central High, closes by paraphrasing William Seward's comment on the death of Abraham Lincoln. From this day forward, Central University High School belongs to the ages. Of Central's 371 remaining students, two-thirds will go to West High, where most of the teachers will transfer as well. On July 7th, in keeping with its practice of having the most senior member serve its president, the board names Ruth B. Doyle, elected in 1964, its first woman leader. She calls for more citizen involvement and the development of a long-range plan for the entire educational program. And as the 6970 school year opens, the Madison educational community is mourning the death of former school board president Dr. Ray Hegel, who dies September 3rd at age 78 after a long illness. A Madison native, 
Hegel served on the school board from 1934 to 1968 and headed the building committee for 15 years. The school in the round on the far southwest was named in his honor while he was so serving. Hegel won six varsity letters in football and baseball at Marquette University and officiated Big Ten Conference football games for 23 years, including working a Rose Bowl. He also coached at Central High and was instrumental in developing the recreation program in the public schools. Dr. Hegel practiced as a dentist from 1912 to 1966, served on the Madison Board of Health for five years, and was a past president of the Wisconsin Dental Society. He was a charter member of both the Downtown Kiwanis Club and the Blackhawk Country Club, a 32nd degree Mason, and member of the Zor Shrine. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, school-bell-ringing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6, and thanks especially for you supporting the show with your dollars. It's instrumental in keeping this news program separated from commercial influence. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Brett Pivato from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. And thanks especially to our pledge rappers this evening, J.D. Siri Ramos and Nate Carlin. Chuck Hademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Wegehaupt produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. It really, truly matters to our uh, shoestring operation of a station. We, we really appreciate it. You make it happen. Up next is Query. Have a good night.